Hi guys, welcome back to LG Opinion and thank you for joining me again. As you can see, it's only me today. It forever follows for a while. Nor that I said I'm going to do a super important podcast and that podcast will be about mental health. I'm a bit like all over the place because I don't like talking to myself. I've never done it before. My podcast will always with friends. So I hope I'll do okay. I hope I'll like structured it as much as it is in my brain. <laughs> what is important for me to say, this podcast about mental health is not going to be just a general idea about mental health. It's going to be my own journey and my own experience. I'm 28 years old, 28 and a half. I've been dealing with this mental health things before I even knew what it means since the age of nine. I'm here to tell my story with the most naked truth and the most naked reality that I can possibly bring. I'm not going to filter anything. I'm not going to make it pretty or easy. I'm just going to mention all the aspects that led me to the peak of my very severe condition, <laughs> the life circumstances, the help I got, the help I get today, everything. I'm going to cover everything in regards to mental health from my own personal perspective and experience, my own life story. I hope I will not mess it up. There's so many details. It's going to be more than one part. So let's go. It's not going to be a fun one, but important one. Whoever just joined us, nice to meet you. My name is Lynn. I'm 28 years old. I was born and raised in Israel. I was born in 94. The year is super important for me to mention because let's keep in mind, almost 30 years ago, we definitely didn't have the knowledge and experience that we have today in regards to mental health and other things that I'm going to touch base on. I feel like us 90s were the very, very, very first humans to ever like be exposed to it and actually take care of it. It was very depressed before. I think the part of me being born and raised in Israel is already to itself a very, very main factor. Whoever grew up in Israel knows this is not an easy country to live in for many, many, many reasons. When I was younger, what affected me the most living in Israel is obviously the life-threatening situation you have there, whether if it's terror attacks or wars, and just try to imagine yourself as a nine-year-old, or that's just the, the, the age that I remember, nine years old, I, I like as if I don't remember before that. But nine years old, it's where you start to understand what's going around you, but you don't really have the capacity to digest it as an adult. Everything is still quite blurry. And I definitely remember myself going with this mask that you do and like there's gas. I don't know how you say this mask in English. So I remember myself going with this mask like to school with me and very, very much afraid that, I don't know, some terrorist will come to our house and murder us and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I remember that back then when I was nine or 10, there was these days with Saddam Hussein and there was a big threat and I was constantly worried. I remember watching uh, Peter Pan, um, the second movie, and there was a scene of Siren there and I went nuts. And that was just like as a child. So as I said, I'm not going to spare any details here. Some will be small, some will be big, but I think all of them are relevant. Now that we established what it is to live in Israel, give or take, 
We are a very, very post-traumatic country. You cannot blame a kid for anything. I don't really care what's your political opinion. I don't really care if your ego likes to see a kid suffer. I personally do not. I don't care where this kid come from. And all of us were kids at some point in Israel and experienced some kind of very, very, very unusual experience when it comes to our security, basically. If we put that on the side, I don't know what happened before the age of nine. Anything before the age of nine is completely blanked for me. Like there's no single memory that I have. Obviously I went to therapy and a lot of therapists told me that there's probably some trauma around that age, which to be honest with you, I'm sorry to disappoint. I have a lot of directions, but I don't know how to put my finger on it. I don't really know what this trauma about. I don't recall it. I don't want to do hypnosis. I have no idea, but everything starts there from the age of nine. So I will say as far as I recall, as far as I recall what affected me that I understand nowadays. And I guess after I will explain about my condition. From the age of nine till I believe I can say the age of 21 or 20, I was convinced due to my life experience, experiences that life is more about death than it is about living. And that's because I experienced a lot of death as a kid. I'm going to tell my story. I want to give more background about myself. I'm a granddaughter to two Holocaust survivors. This is from my mom's side. From my dad's side, it couldn't be farther. My grandparents from my dad's side are basically very Arab culture. My grandma is Turkish. My other grandma, my other grandpa, I'm sorry, is Yemen, who moved to Egypt and then came to Israel. From my mom's side, two of my grandparents are Holocaust survivors with the most horrific stories that you can possibly imagine. Why I'm saying that? Two of my grandparents, as I said, were Holocaust survivors. When my grandma passed away when I was five, um, due to heart issues that again caused because of the Holocaust, my grandfather basically was left alone. So my mother, who is his daughter, basically took him to our house. My grandfather moved living with us when I was, I don't recall, probably six or seven. It's not true to say that I have no memories at all, but I do remember him very, what I can say nowadays, twisted. He was a super, super interesting person, super intelligent. The thing that he did and the thing that he's been through, you can write a book, honestly. But he was always very strange to me. And when it comes to how he treated me, I know he loved us very, very much. Especially my youngest sister, who was a baby back then. He, he used to walk her every day on, in the strolley. But 
I know he loved us very, very much, but what can you do? You cannot blame a person for being as traumatic as my grandfather used to be, surviving the Holocaust and staying completely alone by the age of 12. And he was messed up. Like, you could have built something with, you know, play as a kid, like build something and it would have fallen and he would be like... Like... Very, very deep sense of disappointment. And also very, very deep sense of disconnection. When I'm saying disconnection, he had a whole ceremony while he was going to eat. Every time there was, there, there must have been like a towel, like you need to clean the table, then you put the towel there, then you put a plate and the knife and fork need be on spot and like a glass to the water, a glass to the wine, a glass for everything. Food was insane. I can understand nowadays where it came from, but again, as a child, it was very strange to me. And in a way, uncomfortable as well. You know, kids express themselves a lot when they eat food, when they interact with food. That was always too on point and you cannot bother him. It's just not allowed. Not allowed. When it comes to the nighttime, every night the radio must have been on. Every night. While I don't remember it in particular waking me up, it was on every night. It was on every night. And again, as a kid, you don't understand where it's coming from. Fine, they teach you about the Holocaust. You hear the siren each Holocaust memorial day, but you don't know what it means. You don't understand and you cannot understand. So all of it is just weird and you live beside of that, which don't get me wrong. I loved dearly. Really, I appreciate that man for the short time that I had with him, but it was, it definitely affected me. So the thing that I remember the most from my grandfather is when my mom used to send me and my middle sister to wake him up from his naps because like it's sweet and it's cute and this is your little granddaughter's like waking you up with kisses and we did it and as a kid you don't say no you just go and because he was so traumatic every time when we would wake him up it 100% of the time involved him for a glimpse of a second for a second panicking so that would be like you can stroke him like that super super gently and he would be like <gasps> like that And you're like, damn, there's nothing that I can do that he will just wake up normally. But you need to, you as a child need to relive that panic every time without understanding where it's coming from. So that was unpleasant, I must say. <laughs> I do remember that quite clearly. <laughs> um, where the issue started, clearly, the real issues. This is my memory. I don't know how things really happened. This is what I recall. And I have a very, very clear vision of that. When one day, it was a Saturday, we had guests over. I was sitting on the sofa and my grandfather very slowly crossed the living room and then came back. And I just jumped on the sofa, whatever. Something caught my eye on the floor. There was yellow drops on the floor. And I called my mom. And again, I didn't realize what it is because I'm just a kid. My grandfather just peed on himself. And... That was the beginning of the end. And as far as it comes to me, that was the unconscious moment of realization that something is dying, someone is dying next to me. And that someone is mine. It's my grandfather. And that's happening in my house 
things went really, really down. His cancer came back. Very quickly, my mom had to shower him. And because of his history, my mom really, really wanted to give him the last respect of dying in his own bed. She didn't want to put him in a hospice or anything. So what happened in the upcoming, I don't know how long it took. I don't know if it was months or weeks. It wasn't days. But in the upcoming time, there was a hospital in our house and there were diapers and there was my mom showering my grandfather and there was less of my mom. My dad had to walk and I'm not saying they were not present. They were super present, but there's no chance that such a chaotic situation will happen in your home and you will not notice. You will not feel something. And as a kid, you're like a sponge. So his whole dying process happened in our house. I didn't understand what it means really, but I understand it's not good. And I didn't even know how to react. I remember I went to my friends and I was like, my grandfather is dying. Like, I didn't really know what it means. It, it sounds to me like a legit news to tell. Um, almost as, it, as I'm gossiping. But I honestly just wanted, I think, I just wanted to let it let it out because I didn't understood. And my mom is very communicative and she always told us the situation with my grandfather. She never like kept it as a hush-hush. She said, he's dying, it means he will be gone. I think my mom did her best within that situation to respect her father, which is the first generation, while also taking care of the last generation, which is us, while she's in the middle. But it collapsed so bad so bad because the reality is my mom maybe didn't notice my grandpa my grandpa was dying in the house that i growing in living in everything is communicated to me and i understand nothing i don't recall seeing him anymore at that point i just remember people coming in and out from the house and i remember a specific doctor that came every day and i remember my mom taking him to shower and i remember me bringing my mom a diaper or something and i even like did it hush hush because i didn't want to embarrass him as if that i know that he has diapers or this was a surreal situation for a nine-year-old that her grandfather is dying in diapers while there's another baby here who is my sister who's thank god very healthy and also in diapers there's so many things that i didn't really manage to digest due to my age that was toxic that should not have happened in the house i'm proud of my mom i don't know if i would have done it any difference to be honest but that was that was a mistake to me ever since then I developed an obsession with death. When I knew he's going to pass away and I asked my mom to see him before they take him, like the body, why? But it happened and well, she came to pick me up from school after her father just died. But when I came home, they already took the body. Needless to say that a nine-year-old was never in the funeral and I don't, I, I feel like the situation was super intense, but I never got a, got a closure. And from that, from this point on, I developed an obsession 
with death and later on an obsession with life. And that very, very quickly, while I was still a kid, escalated into what is nowadays known as existential, existential OCD, which is basically a compulsive <laughs> obsession to your existence and things that cannot be answered. A year after my second grandfather passed away as well, he was also very sick and I think it also contributes to why I think life is more about death than it is about living because every time we went to his place, he was very sick, he was very diabetic and he always used to throw up from the treatment and he, and he was one of, these per, one of these people that throw up so loudly, like there's no chance that the house cannot hear and he's throwing up a lot and life happens in the worst way possible next to you <laughs> but everything is like this is it, it's it's normalized because when we eat like friday dinner when we come to kiddush and my grandpa gets up to throw up everybody just continue eating as if no one is dying in the in the toilet because he will get out at some point it's part of the treatment but i i i never got used to it i never got used to it i remember viewing him as a weak sick person and i really wanted to get close to him and i really loved him and i felt like if i'll touch him he will break I remember that fat loud and clear. I don't recall myself once just laying on my grandpa completely like free. I had a thing with not putting my weight on him because even though I was only like nine or 10, I felt like he cannot take it. <laughs> I don't know where that sensitivity came at that age, but I felt like he will not be able to take it. So every time when I hug them, you know, when you hug someone, but you don't really want to put all of the weights on them. So you never really <laughs> fulfill your love to them. So yeah, my first grandpa was dying in our house. Now the other grandpa is super, super sick and I guess dying as well because the year after my first grandpa passed away, my second one passed away as well. Mind you that my grandma already passed away when I was five. That's leaving me only with one grandma by the age of nine, which I'm very grateful for every second I had with them, but what a shame. <laughs> so, of course, no one allowed me to go to this funeral as well. And I wanted to. They allowed me to write a note. I don't blame them, but I have a feeling like I, I, sh I, I should have gone. And I'm going to e explain... The not going to my loved one's funerals played a part with another funeral later on down the line, which I'm going to get to now. I think it was probably a year or two after my uncle passed away from cancer as well. And that was very, very quick. And again, mind you, at this point, I am certain that death is the real deal. It's heavying on me, like it's there. And the more people pass away very close to me, the more I'm convinced that this is a shithole. <laughs> like, what am I doing in this life, <laughs> really? Uh, a year after my uncle passed away, I was already 
I think I was 12 or 13. We had, we had at school in my class a kid that also got a very, very severe cancer. And that was a long process. And that was a shock. And the last time I saw him, it didn't even look like human. My parents didn't allow me to go to the hospice to visit him with the other kids. I saw him briefly, I think a month before he passed away, and he already looked dead. And then he passed away. And that was a shock in our school. Like, really. That was, like, for a week, all of us were sitting on the floor and crying. That looked like a horror movie. But this time, I said it as a fact that I'm going to the funeral. And I went to the funeral and my mom came with me. Obviously, it was beyond chaotic. Like, this is a child that we're burying here. Insane. And... I, I think it was so bad because even though we were not like best friends or something, I saw him every day. He was with me in my, like, in my class, not in one class, in all of my, like in all of the classes. So, and he was very much like alive. He was like the, you know, the goofy one. And if so far, I, I said goodbye to loved ones that are old or sick in like a father age. Now it's someone my age, it's someone from my class. And I'm convinced that life is about death and life is about dying from cancer, specifically. I remember everything from that funeral, like it was knives to my heart, but it's good that I went. I cried after, like, I, I, I was sobbing for a good five hours. My mother had to tell me, like, you need to stop. This is too much. <laughs> but I had to let it go. I cried for, like, a good, <laughs> a good five hours, I think, after that. I never, ever said that before. But for a month after his passing, I was writing, um, like, daily experiences like I was writing daily experiences um, on like I was writing a lot and I left it on the table for him to to be able to read it I still have them um, that was for a month <laughs> I wanted to keep him in the loop I'm sorry if my tonality doesn't match the situation I'm just so overwhelmed <laughs> by by my obsession sometimes <laughs> so yeah I wanted to keep him in the loop it helped me as well that was a chaotic situation. What is more chaotic is that the year after, I was either 14 or 13, and this time a close friend of mine got sick with cancer as well. Now, again, not my bestie, but from the same group. Like, he was in my house, I was in his. We had this weird friendship as kids. He got cancer as well. And I remember that this time, this time I told my mom I'm going to the hospice. I saw him a lot while he was sick and it was, it got ugly very, very quickly. When we went to the hospital for the last time, he was unconscious. He couldn't even pee on his own. There's, there was nothing. He was just there. We were just waiting. His head was like probably double the size, if not more, than a regular human and full with scars from all the surgeries they had on him and that that sight didn't scare me nothing nothing scared me about the situation but great great pain massive 
massive pain. I, I'm just, I just feel at this point, I feel like I, I feel like we're almost playing this game of like death chasing me. And I feel like some, some very, very sarcastic, masochistic game that's going on here between Def and I. Because he is right next to me literally every year, the closest way possible. And, um, and I'm here. So it's like, I'm getting close to you. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's, that's what I was believed. And at this point, we buried another friend, a child, because of cancer. And now I know, now I'm convinced that life is about death. And life is about not only death, but dying very, very brutally from cancer. Like, I, I don't want to sound like as if I'm collecting all this grief to me, but this is just very unusual experiences that were constantly next to me. <laughs> I mean, the years after when we went to high school, there was a kid that there was like, we were only three classes in my high school. It was a private high school. One of them suicide. The year after, one of them died in a motorcycle um, accident. There was one guy from my school from my my grade, like my that a breach fell on him and he died as well. And I just like the surreal thing is this sorrow is something that whether if it's your close friend or someone from your class or the class next to you, you're swimming in grief every second you see your other friends that were closer to this person. Like it's it's griefing it's just chaotic it's chaotic and it happens every year for the most ridiculous ridiculous reasons and i'm just not surprised at this point i have a very very close obsession and relationship with death at this point i will explain in a second what it caused me regardless to my thoughts the symptoms that came with it because there were symptoms so to me this is life and if this is life there's not much point of enjoying life and there's no escape from this fear. And how will it get me? Um, there's another thing that I assume really encouraged my condition nowadays is Ritalin, the pill. I was one of the, I think, one of the first ones to take it when I was very, very young. After I was diagnosed with ADHD and ADD, AD something, whatever. I was never a good student. I never had the ask for it. It's just not for me. It's not till that day as well. Um, they gave me Ritalin, which made me a zombie on a level that I never saw any other zombie like me. My mouth was dry. I had anxiety attacks while having it. I couldn't speak, couldn't eat, I couldn't drink constantly had headaches, constantly head spinning. Like it was the closest thing to combining MD and acid experience that I ever had beside of MD and acid. <laughs> so I think after taking that for a few years, completely fucked me up. And there was not enough information as it is today to say, this is not how it should be. So my parents kept on giving that to me for school or learning only. And they did try other alternatives. And after years, we decided this is just not, uh, this is just not going to work. I do believe that the damage was done. I do believe that these pills fucked something in my brain for good. It definitely felt like a drug. Nothing that is proven, but I do believe so. After I finished my high school, like any other Israeli, we have a mandatory service in the army. I was recruited when there was a war in Israel. I think the name was Amudanan. Forget about the meaning. It's, it's 
it's not important. I just, I, I was just recruited the first day. The first day in army, we already had a siren and I didn't like it. <laughs> I didn't like it. I didn't like that death is attacking me again from a different direction and a very, very realistic one. I didn't like it one bit. This is where my existential OCD kicked in on a personal level. Because now it wasn't just the theory of I might get cancer, God forbid, or now it was rockets on my head. And if I'm not careful enough, and if I'm unlucky, it's going to, it's going to hit me. And do I need to say anymore? I mean, I don't think so. After that, I was signed to serve in a base that is located two or three kilometers from Gaza, from Gaza border. After almost two years serving in the army, I was supposed to be released on September, but just a few months before that, a beginning of another war happened between us and Gaza, between Israel and Hamas. And me being like so close to the border, there was a lot of fire on us. And all the army is literally here. And that became very, very intense very quickly. And we were fearful for our life every, every single day. I'm not comparing myself or what I experienced to other people who had, my, who had way worse than myself. But this didn't benefit me or anyone, really. So at this point... Um, there's fire every day, there's sirens every day. By surprise, we didn't plan it, but all of a sudden, we are not going home for two months. I didn't bring with me enough underwears. I don't think I could bring with me enough underwears. We stopped showering because you don't want a rocket to fall on you while you're showering. It's so close to the border. Sometimes it fell and then there's a siren. So like, you can trust nothing. You can trust nothing. Now even being awake, now even being careful and focused, not gonna help you. If it falls on you, it falls on you. So we didn't shower. If I could avoid eating, I definitely did so because there's no shelter there. Basically, you're avoiding everything. You're becoming a slave to your own ears. You're becoming a slave to being awake in the most terrifying way that you can possibly imagine. You're becoming a slave to sirens. You don't sleep, you don't eat well, you don't shower. And if I already had existential OCD, which I didn't realize back then, but now I know that it was there and it now it came to life because now my my safety was really in jeopardy but really in the most realistic way i was never a warrior i was never actually in in gaza i never killed a person but i saw things that i wish i didn't see i was exposed to facts that i wish i didn't know i was in jeopardy that i wish i didn't feel and that was the final my serving in the army this war which again it's the Hardest war that we knew, we known in Israel for the last 10 years, that completely fucked me up. They released me on the date that I was supposed to be released. I was dismissed from coming again. I don't know how you say that word in English, but basically with my role, I was supposed to come every year or every whatever time to back to the army for a short period of time. They dismissed me because of post-trauma. Um... Me finishing the army now with existential OCD, post-drama and OCD and other things that I will mention later on down the line. I was already on a very, very heavy treatment. 
which did help for certain amount of time. Till the next things happened. I dated a guy. I never said that to anyone beside of my friends. Like there's some family members that I don't know it, but I don't care anymore, honestly. After the army, I started to date this guy. We were dating for, I think, six months. We understood at this point that something in the birth control pills that I'm taking doesn't benefit me. I was bleeding with them for years and now finally I got the right diagnosed and we understood that hormones is something that I'm not able to take. The conversation today is not about how to prevent pregnancy because there are alternatives that don't include hormones, which I use nowadays. No condom, thank you very much. <laughs> Back then, I was 21, I was dating this guy for six months and I didn't realize how easy it is to, for me to get pregnant. And so we played with the dates and that didn't work for us at all. And I think at this point, me and my parents had a very, very rocky relationship. Um, I will explain after with the symptoms because when I got out from the army, I was like, I, was lo I, I broke loose. I didn't really manage a life after. And that, that heavied on the relationship between me and my parents as well, which led us to not talk for a certain period of time. I blame nothing but myself. I, I, it was impossible. I really shut them down. But I started to date this guy. I was barely home. And I remember that I thought I'm pregnant and I didn't really believe it. But I said, oh, maybe I'm pregnant, like a stupid kid or something. And I went to my mom like, look, I know we are a bit, it's a bit rocky between us, but... I feel this and I feel that, I, 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 I throw up, I can't bury my own boobs, I, something is off. And I thought I have like this disease that's called the, the Kiss disease. I don't know how you say it in English, but this is basically a disease that I attack, attack you for like, it can, it can last for months. When some days you have fevers and sometimes you don't. And it's very, very, um, it, 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 you can get it very severely. And because some days I was okay and some days I was off, I felt like... Well, this is what I have. But then my mom said, you should do a pregnancy test. I didn't even finish being, and it was already positive. <laughs> and I was 21, and it was clear to me that if I'll ever get into that situation at this age, then it will end up with an abortion. Because um, I have the, the support from my family and my friends and whatever, and that's what I'm going to do. And I took it so lightly. I'm like, okay, let's get to it. Like, as if it's nothing. The thing is, we found out that I'm already pregnant about two months. And um, with the whole process that you need to do before you actually go through the, the abortion, you need to... It takes some time. They rushed it as much as they rushed it. I did an abortion. I don't remember what was the actual week, but I did it at the end of the third month. Meaning there was a heartbeat and I had a small little belly and for sure I had a hell lot of time to get used to it because I was sick every day. And if I started this thing thinking so obviously that I'm going to have an abortion, every hour that I've been cooking with this idea that there's something in me that is mine, I was less and less into it. The support from my partner at the time was not there. And when I had the courage to bring up that maybe I don't want to do an abortion, he was really, he literally said to me, take a look at my bank account, take whatever you want. I cannot raise a kid right now. I don't know, I feel like I convinced myself not to do it. And nowadays, like, I regret it. I don't, but, but, but I don't regret it at the same time. 
I just wish I was more careful from the beginning. I just wish I wasn't in that situation at all from the first place. But yet again, I didn't know you can get pregnant so easily, so quickly after birth control. And like, I didn't know. By the time I went to, the, to do the abortion, there, was, there, there were chaotic situations along the way. Like when I went to, to do the ultrasound and all the women around me are like 20 something, like older than me, 30, 40. And all of them are willingly pregnant. And all of them are here just for a check. They're keeping it. And I was the only one sitting there doing a check just to see whatever needed to be seen for me to take it off. And that didn't sit well with me. I cried the whole day and it was clear to me that I need to do it. It's the right thing for me to do it. You don't really want something to attach you to this partner for the rest of your life because it was not for me. I went with my brain and not with my heart, but my heart was definitely there. And it's something that like a lot of people say, maybe a lot of people take it different than me. Maybe I'm oversensitive, but by the end of it, I just bought all these snacks that I really, really, really liked. And I just like had a fun day with my baby when I just binge TV, stroke my belly and eat whatever we liked. <laughs> and that was the, that was the end of it. I came the day after to the hospital. I remember when I lay down on the bed and before they they sedated me, I I, woke, I, I got up and I'm like, maybe I don't want to do it. I, I don't want to do it. And then like the nurse, she spoke to me and she's like, yes, you do, blah, blah, blah. She was kind. It's like, what the fuck? I did it. I woke up. I don't really remember much. My partner was supposed to come and be with me after but I didn't saw him after for two months, I think. Why is that detail important? <sighs> because this sorrow, 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 whatever, I don't give a fuck about my accent. I'm not comparing that for a bit, but this is a loss of a child. Doesn't matter how you look at it. So I took it completely as a, as a loss of a child. Without even wanting to, without even realizing, I was grieving. From the moment I woke up till God knows how long after, I was beyond devastated. Why it's important that it didn't came? First of all, you fucking asshole, honestly. But who gives a fuck about you? Like, you fucking low-life human being. No responsibility whatsoever, on any level. Mean. Anyway, um, and yes, I am judging. Because there's like some events in life that you need to appraise yourself or whatever you say it. Anyway, the conversation is not about this motherfucker. Um, who, by the way, just, just like as a fun little detail, when I saw him after two months, it's because he chased me up coming to my walk almost every day or sending someone to ask to speak with me. When I finally agreed to speak with him, I'm like, what do you want? I hated him so much at this point. And I'm like, what do you want? And he was so disrespectful towards the situation. And he's like, look, I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, this is one of the only things in life probably, or maybe beside of murdering someone, that you cannot be sorry for because you cannot fix it. There's no alternative to it. Like, I would have kept it if you were less within yourself, but what is done is done. But what do you want from me now? And he's like, I want to marry you. He proposed to me in the car. He's like, 
I'll marry you and I'll make you another one. I'm like, what is this? A pizza? You don't just make another one. You don't just shove another one to the oven. Each one is a one. Anyway, fucked me up really. But I again take responsibility. I am allowed to be angry, but the responsibility was in my hands as much as it was in his hands. And the situation could have been better or not happen at all. So I wanted him to be there when I woke up because I felt like even my mom or no one really experienced the grief that I experienced at this moment. No one here just lost what could have been his child. And that's after a heartbeat and everything. It was... That was the first time that I was happy about death. And I was... I actually wanted to die. I didn't have the courage to kill myself, but I was desiring that very much so. The idea behind it was, wherever my baby is, I want to be there as well. The fact that they just took it out of me and put it in the trash, and I'm still here living and eating, I didn't, I didn't take care of my own baby. I felt the lowest in, of the lowest of the humans ever. Again, maybe it's just me, but this is how I felt. And I didn't want to be here anymore. And I started to walk on, I start to walk on the roads, <laughs> hoping that a truck will run me over. I stopped drinking and I stopped eating. I lost like eight kilos or something and I'm already skinny, so you can only imagine. I was doing everything in my power to die without taking it to my own hands because I didn't have the courage to. And um, something happened. I believe I got a sign. And that sign was to me that the baby is okay and I, I should move on. And I'm, I've been, I'm being forgiven. And slowly I started to... I don't want to say live again, but slowly I started to come back 